I think the effect on individual citizens, I think the privacy issues, the gun rights, the Affordable Care Act, the immigration and gun control, I think all of those have a very human element. And I think the citizenry is in a certain state of turmoil about it right now because they understand conflicting rights and we have to resolve them as a democracy. But I think to me that's the theme that there's so much that affects individuals. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from a very sunny and uh, recently rainy Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And where it snows all the time. It's actually kind of warm here today. Good for you. We have snow in the mountains. And before we introduce today's topic, Bob, we would like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers. You can find it at goclio.com. On the last day of 2013, it's only appropriate to recap the top legal stories of the year. We've covered some of these topics on the show, such as same-sex marriage and Obamacare. Today, we want to open the floor to discuss what made recurring headlines for both legal publications and national publications. And we're very lucky uh, to have two guests to help us talk about these topics today, Alan Pusey and Molly McDonough, the editor uh, and uh, managing editor of the ABA Journal. Uh, They have uh, seen what news they've covered over the year and what they didn't cover, and they're going to talk a little bit about that with us. Let me uh, begin by introducing uh, Alan Pusey. Alan has been with the ABA Journal since 2007, was named editor and publisher in 2011. Prior to joining the ABA Journal, he worked for 26 years at the Dallas Morning News as an investigative reporter, feature writer, special projects editor, and Supreme Court correspondent. Very honored to have you with us today, Alan. Pleasure to be with you. We'd also want to welcome Deputy Managing Editor of ABA Journal, Molly McDonald. Molly has been a member of the ABA Journal team since 2001. She currently oversees online operations and special projects, including the Legal Rebels series and the annual Blog 100. Molly's covered the courts and the legal profession for more than 20 years, and she's been a reporter and editor for the National Law Journal, as well as a reporter for many other news sources. We're happy to have you on the program, Molly. Thanks for having me. Molly, let's toss it to you first. Let's get started with what you think the top legal stories were for the year. Well, I think Edward Snowden, the NSA, and privacy law seem to dominate headlines, at least on our site and uh, a lot of the large publications. The debate over stand-your-ground laws, especially in the wake of the George Zimmerman acquittal, and for us in particular, the health of large law firms. Another really big one for us is the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act. And with uh, states passing laws to limit the ballot, I expect we'll see a lot of those stories to come in the next few months as well. Let's uh, let Alan put a couple on the table, too, and then maybe we can talk about them in a little bit more depth. But uh, Alan, how about you? What are some of the big ones that stand out to you this year? Well, uh, as usual, I uh, agree with Molly (laughs) and her choices. I I think those are all big stories for the year. I'd throw in uh, 
the establishment of gay marriage in quite a number of states and the uh, growing momentum for that to be acceptable across the country. And um, I would also throw in, oh, immigration reform. It's a more of a political story than a legal story, I, I suppose, at this point. But it has huge ramifications for an awful lot of people in the country. Well, you know, I think it's so interesting. As I was thinking about this myself in terms of what are the top stories, uh, how many of them really just transcend law. You know, how many of them have become political or social stories? You know, the, the Snowden and the NSA one, the gay marriage one, the Zimmerman case and, and the Stand Your Ground laws, uh, all of these have taken on dimensions well beyond uh, just, just simple, uh, you know, legal implications, I guess you might say. And we're also finding that technologies influencing uh, legal stories. I mean, we've got problems with drones. We've got uh, robots coming online. Uh, all types of things. Right, and that goes right back to privacy and security being kind of top of mind, top headlines with the drones and uh, and regulation and how much regulation is going to be acceptable. Regulation, I think, is going to be a continuing issue in the headlines. Yeah, we actually did a show recently on not on the on drones from a privacy aspect, but we a follow up on the on the Amazon drones and the commercialization of drones. But the privacy issue is such a big one. You know, there was a, a report that came out just this week on the NSA uh, telephone snooping suggesting that the NSA really needs to uh, rein in what it's doing. There was uh, the U.S. District Court case uh, just earlier this week, I think, also finding that the uh, NSA uh, snooping or at least collection of phone data was most most likely unconstitutional. So, Alan, what do you make of, of Snowden in all this? I mean, how do you assess his place in kind of getting the conversation go around this? I mean, is, is he a, a villain? Uh, is he a criminal? Is he a hero? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any doubt that he broke the law. That's, uh, I think that's sort of without question. I think there are a lot of questions on how he was able to do it. I mean, he was a very minor level uh, contract worker for a company that did work for uh, NSA, outside of the NSA and the CIA. And yet he had access to all of the, this information that uh, he saw fit to reveal. I think uh, in terms of the government, he would be a criminal, but uh, he's hailed as a hero everywhere else. A friend of mine was in Brazil for a journalism conference there, and Glenn Greenwald, who helped uh, expose the Snowden documents, was uh, treated like a rock star down in Brazil. I think uh, he's captured an awful lot of the fear of American technology overcoming other people's rights as well as, well, that, those of Americans. Do you see any thought how this might play out? I mean, there there had been some talk about a possible deal that would let Snowden come back to the country. Uh, any speculation on how that's going to play out? I mean, does he remain a, a Russian for the rest of his life, or does there something happen that get worse, cops some kind of a plea or something and, and gets back here? Well, he, he's got a one-year visa in Russia, as, as I recall, and he's applied for political asylum in, I believe, Bolivia. And maybe that's where he wants to live his life. He seems not to have fought it out very well, as, uh, nearly no. as I can tell. Yeah. He was like, what, 28, 29 years old. Mm -hmm. We talked about technology, and uh, we've also had a significant increase this year in mass killings. And we've had Connecticut, we've got a recent one in Colorado, Boston Marathon bombing. What do you make of this increased level of violence that we're seeing? 
You know, we live in Chicago, and uh, Molly and I, and the level of gun violence is not foreign to us here. Uh, it's a matter of, uh, it's kind of an open scandal, really, uh, particularly in the southern part of the city. And, you know, when you, when you see large-scale violence on the order of Newtown, you expect there to be a backlash of some kind. And I guess at the beginning of the year, a lot of people expected that. But as the year played out, I think we saw the overwhelming power of the uh, NRA and other lobbying groups that believe in uh, wholesale arms possession. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be any strengthening of the gun laws in the wake of Newtown, but instead kind of a more strengthening of the right to bear and carry arms even openly. And it seems like there was an outcry that we needed not only some increase in gun laws, but also some increase in mental health attention to people who are a little out of sorts, or maybe very much out of sorts, and not able to really process life. And we've heard it after uh, mass murders in the past. You seen any improvement in mental health? I've not seen any push in that direction other than uh, early, early talk that that's what needs to happen. Uh, but, it, but I haven't seen any. Why do you think we've forgotten about it? Why did that disappear off the radar? I think the budget scandals. I, I, I don't know what else to call it. The impasse over the budget has been sort of scandalous over the last uh, three or four years. And uh, I think programs like mental health or increases in spending for mental health, that's going to have to come from the federal level because a lot of the states are simply scrambling for enough tax money to pave their roads and pay their state patrolmen. It's been strangled out of the system, and I think uh, we're going to pay a price for that. We've also seen some some changes in uh, women in the law. What's your take on how those changes are affecting women as uh, lawyers? We've seen more women rise to the top positions at some large law firms, but there really still aren't that many women in law firm leadership as opposed to, you know, even 10 years ago. The advances haven't been that great. And I think we're constantly looking here for ways to figure out why that's not happening, why women aren't advancing in the legal profession. Sometimes the discussion focuses on work-life balance, but it's more than that. It's a lot about how women are able to have access to client development and uh, mentors, and it's more complex, and we covered that significantly this year, and I think we had some good conversations with women and the different paths they were able to take to get to leadership positions, but that's in the legal field. I pretty much wish that was the the case that that, uh, women had really advanced in the profession. There may be more women lawyers, but they're still not rising to the leadership positions other than just very incremental progress. There's a recent ABA report that shows that women are now 33% of lawyers, but we're still not even over 5% for general counsel. We need to take a short break, and we'll be back in just a few moments. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. 
And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams with my co-host, Bob Ambrosi. And Alan, you mentioned briefly before the break that um, there's been some attention due to the government shutdown. How did it happen? Why did it get fixed? And how can we prevent it from happening again? Uh, boy, I'm not sure it's fixed. I think the immediate problem's fixed for at least uh, two years now, the, uh, the budget. But the, the whole issue of a minority of a minority controlling the outcome of the legislative process is, uh, I, I think, still troublesome. And probably the biggest outcome as far as many lawyers would see it would be the fact that the Senate did away with the filibuster rule and has proceeded to vote on uh, judgeships that have been held up for a long time. It's sort of a systemic problem. I think both parties can blame each other a great deal, but I don't think it served the public very well. And it's got a trickle down. I mean, you see the same sort of strategies happening at the state level where state legislatures uh, in particular are trying to control the courts, not only through the uh, appointment of judges, but the limiting of their powers or the uh, uh, limiting of budgets. We've seen an awful lot of strategies in, in that regard on the state level. So I, I've got to ask Molly a question here uh, since since we've got you on here, uh, and I'm not sure this is exactly a top legal story, but as we're recording this, which is uh, about a week before the show is going to air, it's the last day of the voting on the Blog 100, and uh, there's been a lot of a lot of chatter about it as there always is. But I guess my question to you isn't about that so much as to what extent do you see, and I know you're, you're heavily involved in the ABA journals, social media, to what extent is social media still a story in the legal field among, among lawyers? And what does that mean for sort of traditional media like the ABA journal? How do you see the ABA journal fitting in this world of, of social media, new media? Well, th- that one's an easy one for me. The, God, I thought it was going to be a tough one. For us, I, <laughs> <laughs> it's important for us to be already in places where we think our audience is going to be. So, you know, we want to be where lawyers are starting to gather or will be gathering so that they find a place to discuss legal issues and news and topics of interest to the journal. Uh, So we're constantly exploring new media and uh, social media in particular. And I'm a big proponent of making sure that you're comfortable in that medium when you're there. If you're going to be active on Twitter, you should be comfortable in that space. And we're pretty comfortable with Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and a little bit with Google Plus and more so with Pinterest, I think just because there are staff here that are interested. And then how lawyers are using that, that's a huge question. I think the same issues and pitfalls come up that you hear with teenagers who are now realizing that uh, all that they've been putting on social media 
in early high school through college and then into college is coming back to haunt them in job searches. And it's the same for, it would be the same for lawyers who are having some of these discussions in what they consider a private space. And then suddenly it's spilling over into their practice and, and in public ways that they never intended. I think that's one of the biggest dangers on the legal ethics side. Yeah, yeah. Good. But I could talk about that all day. Well, we'll we'll do another show on it sometime. <laughs> I'd like to, I can talk about it all day too. But it, you know, I, I don't know where it fits in into the top story category. For a while, it was a big story. You know, the lawyers blogging and social media and all that. And I think the ABA Ethics 2020 Commission made it a big story. Uh, it made it an even bigger story, perhaps in some way. But that's almost sort of old news now. And I, I'm wondering, uh, as we go into 2014, to what extent this is still a story. I, I think the ethics implications maybe are, and uh, beyond that, I don't know. There's also a, a story that came out recently and in the past several days about approximately 80% of scientific reports and recent data being lost due to bad storage methods and outdated email addresses and the like. What's the danger of something like that happening in the legal industry? We're having LexisNexis and Westlaw record all of our stuff, but is there any chance that all of the law is going to disappear now that it's electronic? I mean, what happens if we have that type of a problem that the science uh, field has had? Well, I know Alan has a lot to say about this. We did a whole feature this last year, Fading Past, about deteriorating data and data storage. And link rot has become a big issue, even with the Supreme Court. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head at the moment of what the percentages of links that are no longer valid that even the Supreme Court has used or referred to in opinions. So I think it's it's a big issue, and I don't think that there have been really good solutions. Yeah, in in the past year, we've actually had a feature on some of the ramifications of the digitalization of some of the legal documents are sort of precluding the storage of original documents. And so the courts are starting to get involved in what denotes an original document. And a lot of it is not just legal history, but history. You know, original mortgages, original surveys, original deeds. And as storage methods change, then you have to keep up with that. I mean, the sheer amount of paperwork. Counties and and states want to get rid of paperwork, so they digitalize. But in digitalizing, they also are getting rid of the original documents that underlie those digital copies. So it's a huge question. Alan, are we going to have the same problem with the Google Book Project? Are we going to eliminate hard copies of books and libraries go by the wayside in the coming decade? My wife hopes so. Um, She's tired of all the books around my house. But I think that's a a matter of access. I mean, books are sort of different in the sense that I think the popularity of Amazon Kindle and some of the electronic readers are making it clear that people are fairly comfortable reading on electronic media. I think in some way they're going to have to coexist. But I can't see the elimination of actual books. I think those will always be sort of premier documents. I can't imagine an, a book on architecture or photography being uh, solely electronic. One of the topics you alluded to at the outset, Molly, was the uh, viability, I guess, of the law firm model. I mean, I, I know that you have you folks have had some stories on the pyramid structure of the traditional law firm and, and whether that's crumbling. And there are people out there like Richard Suskind saying that the, the solo and small firm is going to disappear and be taken over by these sort of medium-sized firms. And how much of that is a real story in your perception? I mean, to what extent is the law firm model changing, if at all? I think that it is 
changing. I don't know that it's always changing in the right ways. I think that everybody is looking for the best ways to sustain their business model. And these are stories that we're going to be continuing to follow. I do think that there's a big transition for law firms, with, especially with new technologies and with global practice. And I think that some firms are adapting and adopting technologies more quickly and more effectively than others. And I think we'll see more and different models come about. As we talk about 2013, let's take a look ahead also at 2014. What do you think are going to be the legal stories that take the headlines in 2014? I'm looking at the New Yorker. And they're pegging them at same-sex marriage, Obamacare, abortion, Obama's judges, voting rights cases, NSA, and, you know, of course, our forever interest in celebrities. Definitely with the the Affordable Care Act, I would say the uh, contraception mandate is going to be a top headline, especially with some, what, 45 suits in the Supreme Court ready to hear the case. The Sibelius cases and the uh, Hobby Lobby and Conestoga. I think the cost of law schools and higher education in general has got to be the story that you're going to see more and more of. And I'll just point out that there's kind of an interesting model to watch at uh, William Mitchell College of Law, which uh, where the ABA just approved its first online hybrid degree program. I think that'll be interesting, especially if that has an impact on cost. Law schools have really been under attack this year. I mean, for they're misreporting and inflating their placement information for essentially misleading you know, potential uh, students, uh, potential lawyers, for their failure to provide practical skills training, being kind of glued to this uh, archaic model of education. And I know the ABA, of course, has been fairly vocal. Uh, well, maybe not vocal enough for some. A- ABA is, in itself has come under some criticism, I think, for maybe not pushing harder to get law schools to implement reforms. But still, the ABA has uh, certainly addressed this issue. Any thoughts on where that's headed, what we might see happening there, what the next big step there in terms of law school? Uh, Alan or, or Molly, I'll throw that to either of you. Um, I think certainly most of the deans I've talked to are – trying in their own way to rebel against the, the uh, tyranny of the uh, U.S. News and World Report rankings. But uh, at the same time, they will confide that they try to game the system. And I think as transparency grows, I think there'll be less gaming and sort of different marketing models. Some who will stick with teaching a jurisprudence model, uh, others will go to a more practical or business approach, and some are already kind of changing to feature business technology models for law firms and law degrees. And a lot of people are looking at law degrees as a way to market themselves in non-traditional areas of business. So I think you're going to see a little more free-form marketing of law schools. I, Molly may disagree, but um, that's, that's kind of the way I would figure it. No, I, I think that's right. Can I just add that I think like law firms, they're grappling with the same market changes and practice concentrations and needs of the clients and in how lawyers are trained that needs to adapt and evolve. So I think they're struggling with some of the same issues that large law firms are with how to adapt to the changing marketplace. Alan, what do you think the worst legal story in 2013 was? What, what should we most have been embarrassed about that happened this year? Oh, gosh. Um, 
I'll have to go back to uh, gun rights. As I said earlier, after the Newtown massacre, uh, there seemed to be an abundant public opinion that I think still endures that there ought to be reasonable gun controls. And the inability to do that, I think, is, is scandalous. Well, we've just about reached the end of our program, and it's time to wrap up with your final thoughts and contact information for our listeners. And Alan, as we throw this one over to you to summarize, could you kind of give us what you think might be a general theme that we've seen this year in these top legal stories? What's the consistency among all of them? I think the effect on individual citizens, I think the privacy issues, the the gun rights, the uh, Affordable Care Act, the immigration and uh, gun control, I think all of those have a very human element. And I think the citizenry is in a certain state of turmoil about it right now because they, they understand conflicting rights and we have to resolve them as a democracy. But I think To me, that's the theme, that there's so much that affects individuals. And your contact information so our listeners can reach out to you if they like? Alan.Pusey, P-U-S-E-Y, at AmericanBar.org. Great. Thank you. And Molly, we'll throw it to you now. Alan's was pretty comprehensive. I think that the civil rights, civil liberties, privacy law, those were the kind of the biggest issues that seemed to come out of a lot of these stories. And then for me, I would also throw in, we didn't really talk about this too much, but kind of a growing backlash of zero tolerance policies. And we're seeing more of that, especially on, on our site, a lot of outrage over lack of common sense and um, needing to bring a little bit more of that back into the schools and businesses and being maybe a little bit more forgiving with mistakes. And that comes back to social media as well. Great. And your contact information? Molly.McDonough at AmericanBar.org and on Twitter at Molly underscore McDonough. Great. And that's M-C-D-O-N-O-U-G-H. Yes. Oh, Bob, we've come to the point in the program where you and I get to have 30 seconds to share our closing thoughts before we're cut off by the buzzer. So uh, whether you're ready or not, Bob, go. One of the biggest stories in my mind this year uh, that we really didn't talk about at all tonight, I wish we had, is the dwindling availability of resources to support legal aid for the poor. IOLTA funds uh, have been drying up for years now. It's a real crisis situation in the delivery of legal services and access to justice in our country. People say there's too many lawyers, but there are lots of people who just can't get a lawyer. And it's an important topic. I actually think, uh, there goes my buzzer, but it's one we need to talk about more. Craig, how about you? You know, I'm going to go with the general theme that I think that this is the year of the citizen. I think the citizen on the internet. I agree with Alan that essentially we've become more informed, we're more engaged and more involved, and it seems like we're speaking out more. There's been a significant increase, and I think that the top legal stories of the year is that people woke up and started talking. And I'm really glad to see it because the conversation, I think, will solve a lot of problems, but also create a lot. But we're headed in the right direction. Well, I'd like to really just take, yeah, I'd like to just thank uh, Molly and Alan for being with us today. And what our listeners don't know is that they've borne through a few technical difficulties as we've been recording this show today. So we really appreciate both uh, their time to be with us and uh, and your patience uh, today with us. Uh, Thanks a lot to both of you. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Molly and, and uh, Alan, for being on the show. And we also, Bob, need to thank our producers, Mark Oblinger and Amy Thompson, for slogging through this and making the podcast look beautiful, even though there were some serious technical difficulties with it. The final product will turn out to be great. I'm positive of that. But that does bring us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. And, you know, I, I never mentioned in this whole show, I probably should have in the full disclosure uh, department mentioned that I'm now writing a, a column, at least periodically, for the ABA Journal on Technology. So uh, watch for me there as well. When you want legal think, lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.